Hello, and welcome to Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. I'm John Duffley, the Communications Manager here at the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. In this episode, the ACFE's Chief Training Officer, John Gill, sat down with Charles Antonucci, the former president of the Park Avenue Bank who was convicted in 2015 for trying to fraudulently obtain more than $11 million from the U.S. government's Troubled Asset Relief Program. Antonucci also pleaded guilty to other charges, including self-dealing, bribery, embezzlement of bank funds, and a multi-million dollar fraud scheme involving an insurance company. The ACFE does not compensate convicted fraudsters, but by learning what motivates fraudsters to act and understanding how they think, certified fraud examiners can be better equipped to identify potential red flags earlier and even prevent fraud from happening in the first place. We hope you will discover both in this conversation. And now... Here is John Gill with Charles Antonucci. Before you bought the uh, Park Avenue Bank, you, you had a career in banking. Can you describe just briefly what your career was leading up to the uh, taking over as the president of Park Avenue Bank? I started out in 1971 as a management trainee for a small bank on Staten Island, New York. Um, spent nine years there moved up to basically the number two position at the time, um, got married, left New York, and moved up into the Adirondacks and became the executive vice president of a small bank up there. Uh, about three years later, I became president of, of, the, uh, of the bank. Actually, it was the Savings and Loan Association. Um, and I spent another nine years there. Decided to leave and get out of banking, so to speak, and went to work for a company that was owned by 54 banks that did large real estate projects in and around New York. And it was just about the time um, we were going through our second financial crisis here. Um, and I became a workout specialist, basically helped the banks resolve some of the issues with builders. I mean, there were thousands of busted projects all over New York and many we had loans on. So I did that for three years. Then I was asked to take over a small bank in the Bronx, which I did, and the bank was uh, probably the most corrupt place I ever worked. Um, ended up actually becoming a whistleblower. Um, they immediately fired me. So for the first time since 1972, I was at work. Uh, an attorney that I knew said, hey, you know, you've got a skill, um, start a business. So I started a consulting business. Um, and I did that. Uh, it sort of morphed into just doing workouts for banks to become a loan review system um, to where I started branching out into private lending. Uh, I did, um, um, did a little investment banking, you know, helping small institutions. And that's kind of how the Park Avenue Bank situation came about. Um, I can get into that because I mean, that's kind of the story, I guess. Um, so I get a call from an attorney. I've worked with a lot of attorneys and accountants, do various clients, various banks. So I get a call from an attorney friend of mine who says to me, um, I have a client who's looking to buy a bank. He's identified this small bank in Connecticut, and he'd like you to do diligence on it for us. Um, I said, okay, what's the name of the bank? And he told me the name of the bank. And I said, well, tell them don't waste his time. They're going to be closed. I had, some, I had good relations with regulatory agents at the time. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, they've got serious issues and the, the FDIC is going to close them in a week. 
So why bother, you know? So anyway, that's what happened. So he says to me, hey, this guy would really like to meet with you. He's looking for a bank. Turned out he was a Russian guy in New York, a lawyer. We met, told me what he was looking for. I said, okay. Um, you know, I had contacts, mostly among smaller banks. So I identified two or three banks for him. Uh, we settled on one and uh, we met with the president and sort of not came to terms, but agreed to move forward. So I said to this guy, I said, you know, you need to get a, an attorney that specializes in this business. Because he said, well, I'm an attorney. I said, well, you know, that's not going to work. So anyway, I had a relationship with um, a, a law firm in New York called Cadwallader. Um, the managing director actually became my chairman later on. And he... Um, told us to use one of their attorneys who had been the former superintendent of banking in New York. So we met with him, and he says, there's this bank called Park Avenue Bank um, that needs to be needs a buyer. And so we said, I said, what's the deal? It's owned by a Turkish national. Um, he's in trouble over in Turkey. They've taken his passport. He can't leave the country. Um, and the uh, Office of Control of Currency wants him to sell the bank. They want them out. Um, so there's an opportunity here. So we met with the then president of the bank. We drove up to Park Avenue. We met with him. Um, had an introductory meeting. Everything seemed okay. Uh, so we said, well, let's proceed. You know, let's see where this takes us. So we did a video conference with the owner of the bank. And um, I didn't realize that the Turkish and the Russians are not friends. <laughs> okay. So there was a little tension with this. Um, at this, about the same time, the, the, the lawyer uh, wasn't quite what he appeared to be. You know, he claimed he had the money, um, really didn't have the money. He was running a loan brokerage operation, doing some pretty shady stuff. So I decided, you know, I need to distance myself from this guy. But around the same time, Errol says, yeah, I like this guy, Charlie. I want to do a deal with him. So... You know, through a series of events, um, uh, the attorney owed me some money. Um, he wasn't paying me. I hired a lawyer, and as part of the settlement, he gave up any rights or claims he had to the bank because technically I was working for him. At that point, I'm free to negotiate a deal. Okay, And I'm a deal junkie, so it was more fun just putting this deal together. I mean, it was a complicated mess. I, I met with the OCC. They wanted this guy out, and if he didn't get out by a certain date, they were going to liquidate the bank. So we had a, a time frame to do the deal. Um, so I started negotiating with Errol. Um, the problem was I didn't, have a, I didn't have a buyer, okay? So I said, well, let me see what kind of a deal I can make, and then we'll find a buyer, you know? So I, he and I went back and forth for about three months. I went over to Turkey a couple times. He was tough. But we finally came to terms. The guy really wasn't in much of a bargaining position, and I knew that. So we kind of worked through it. Um, then it became time to show me the money. <laughs> okay, so I said, okay, you know, I got to go find the money. So through another relationship I had, uh, he's, this guy calls me and he says, listen, I got a friend who's an attorney, has a client, wants to get into banking. You should meet him. Meet with the attorneys. Uh, we have a very frank discussion. He said, okay, I'd like you to meet this guy tonight. Okay. So we go to, uh, it turns out he's an Orthodox Jewish man, and we meet at the Prime Grill in Manhattan. 
um, 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. So we sit down and um, he doesn't show up. So the attorney says, well, let's have something to eat. He will. So in walks this guy about 10.30. And he says, hi, and I understand you have a bank that uh, I may be interested in. So I said, okay. So he says, tell me the deal. So I tell him the deal, like in 15 minutes. He said, okay. He said, are you in the deal? I said, well, I don't know. I said, I wasn't intended to be in. He said, well, I'd like you to stay in. I said, well, I don't have that kind of money. He says, well, you know, we'll give you a piece if you, but you got to stay in. He said, his thinking was, if, if it's a good enough deal, then we want you to be part of it. So the whole conversation took 15 minutes. He said, okay, I'm in, and leaves. <laughs> okay. So I said to the attorney, he said, that's just the way he is. If he says he's in, he's in. So we'd worked, he and I negotiated a fee for me and, and the percentage of the bank, and off he goes. So we're supposed to meet at the lawyer's office the next morning to sign it up. Um, I go to the lawyer's office. He calls me on the phone, the, uh, David, and he starts renegotiating with me. And I said, hey, you know, and I had a little bit of a temper. So I said, listen, this is I don't have time for your crap. And his lawyer's sitting there turning weight. <laughs> okay. David was a pretty wealthy guy um, and pretty much got his way. Okay. So he wasn't used to getting pushed back. So he kind of backed off, and we came to terms, and the agreement was signed, and off we went. We spent another, I guess by this it was the fall of 2003, we spent the rest of the time putting the deal together. We finally negotiated a deal, okay? And um, we go to the OCC, and we say, you know, we want to do a change of control. He said, well, you know, it's going to take six, eight months to do this. And look at the time, and we don't, it's past the June 30th deadline. Clearly, they just wanted to liquidate the bank. Okay. So we're kind of dead in the water. So the attorney, who was also representing Errol and the bank, calls me. He said, listen, I got an idea. I said, what? He said, what if we flip the charter from a, a national charter to a state charter? I said, well, we really wanted the national charter, but yeah, if that works, can you do it? Well, he's the former superintendent of banking. So we have a meeting with the state officials um, to discuss it, and they're more than interested because at the time, everybody was switching from state to federal, so they were more than happy to get a bank into their system. So we go down and have the meeting, David, myself, and the attorney, and we're sitting there, and I knew the, the uh, superintendent. Um, so we're, we're chatting, and uh, he turns to David, and he says, what do you know about banking? And he said, well, I use a lot of banks, you know. Um, he says, well, did you ever run a bank? He says, no. You ever sit on a board of bank? No. So he says, um, it's going to be kind of tough, you know. And, and so he turns to me, and he says, Charlie, where, where are you in this deal? I said, well, I'm going to be sort of a, I'm, I'm collecting a brokerage fee, and I'll be sort of a, a, a passive owner. He says, well, the only way I'm giving David a license is if you're running it. So I'm sitting there, and David says, okay, <laughs> you know, that's how I became president of the bank. Okay, I didn't intend to do it. Um, I had had a, the last time I was in banking was in the 80s, and I began to realize that I didn't work well in regulated environments. So this was going to be a little bit of a challenge for me. Um, but, you know, sort of my ego got in the way a little bit, too, and he was offering me a lot of money, 
and ownership in the bank. So I said, okay. I agreed to do it for three years. Um, and off we went. Uh, we get close to, we're doing all the due diligence and the states agreed to fast track it and get it through. We get to the end of May and uh, the Turkish government files an injunction to stop the sale. Okay, so um, again, we're dead in the water. So we meet with the attorneys for them and we work out a deal. We basically said, listen, if you liquidate, you're gonna get 10 cents on a dollar. If you let us buy it, your value is, is going to increase dramatically. Well, let me back up a second. Because of Errol's situation, they basically had a claim to his ownership shares of the bank. So to get their money, they figured liquidation was the best way to get it. And we said, no, it's not. You know, let us take over the bank. We can grow it and create real value here. Because um, he had $14 million in capital in it. Um, there's only 25 million in assets. We were putting another 10 million in uh, into the deal. Uh, and the way we structured it was because they wanted Errol completely out of control. They didn't want any say, anything to do with the board, whatever. So we worked out a deal where he became preferred, the only preferred shareholder, non voting shareholder, okay, um, which satisfied the state regulatory people. And we convinced the Turkish government, we said, listen, we'll, we'll give you an option. Um, you know, give us an option on the shares and you can exercise it at this price. We would exercise it at this price, which made them happy. Okay. So we closed on, November, on, the, on June 30th. We closed. Um, and I took over. Um, David turned out to be a royal pending. I mean, he was just all over the place. Um, he wanted pretty much to run everything. And I said, it's not going to work. I said, really, it's going to work. Um, oh, the other thing, the regulator said, you can't take any dividends out for three years. So I came up with a model um, based on what one of my clients did. I said, listen, there are other ways to make money in the bank that you can take profits. So we created a fund. We called it the Park Avenue Fund, which was basically a hard money lending operation. Okay? Totally separate from the bank. Okay? Funded with David's money and other investors' money. And we would do deals that the bank wouldn't qualify at the bank. Okay? Basically, bridge-type loans. We would do nine-month, 10-month loans. We charge 14, 50%, a couple of points. And then what would happen is we would sell the senior piece to the bank at 8%. So the bank was getting 8% and a 5% market. We had a 30% loan value, um, so it's pretty safe from a regulatory point of view. And obviously that brought the funds yield up to 30%, which we could take the profits, okay? We couldn't take it out of the banks, so we would take it out that way. We got regulatory approval to do it. I don't think they understood, quite understood what we were gonna do, but they approved us doing it. And that's how we started. We grew the bank um, immediately from, I think the first year we went from 25 million to 100 million. Um, and we use broker deposits as a as a tool, and then um, um, within the first three years, we were close to four hundred million. Uh, I built a branch in Borough Park. Uh, I built another one in Bay Ridge. Um, you know, particularly catering to the Orthodox community, um, and we were moving along pretty well okay, until two thousand eight. <laughs> okay, so. 
proverbial hit the fan. I mean, we, uh, you know, we were in the real estate business. Eighty percent of our loans were real estate loans. Okay, either the bridge loans or loans that we made directly. Um, the first crack was when you know these, these the Wall Street firms started collapsing, and we had preferred stock in Fannie Mae at the time. Um, when Fannie Mae failed, we lost uh, I think it was five million dollars, which triggered another series of events. Dropped our capital ratio below ten percent, and we had to be at ten percent because we had broker deposits. Okay. So. We're up its creek, so to speak. So we met with the regulars. We went down, we met with the superintendent. We said, listen, here's our problem. Um, we got $200 million of broker deposits maturing over the next three months. My capital ratio is below 10%. I can't, um, you know, I can't meet the requirement, but we'll go out of business. We'll, we'll liquidate. We need to raise $5 million to, to keep this thing afloat. So... Basically, he said to me, do whatever you got to do, but you know, we don't want to see you fail. We've gone out of our way to put you in business, and we don't want to see you fail. So what I heard was, we don't really give a shit where you get the money. Just get it. Okay? So I did. Um, we had a relationship with a, with a customer that uh, somebody brought to us who was a um, pretty shady character. Okay? He, and we knew it. I mean... Um, he was in the PEO business, uh, among other things, and um, um, we had gotten involved with him, and to a certain extent, I had gotten involved with him more than I should have. Um, private jets, you know, tickets to the Masters, stuff like that. Um, so when we were trying to raise money, um, I one day I'm saying it was I got to raise five million dollars if we're out of business, and he we, he was using our bank. So clearly it was in his best interest to see us survive because nobody else would take his business. So he says, I'll give you the money. Okay. Problem was he's a convicted felon. Okay. So we came up with a scheme as a way to get the money into the bank. Um, basically using his attorney as, as a front, um, I sold a piece of my consulting business to him for $5 million. Okay. Uh, then I invested the money. Okay. Um, a couple things happened that I should have been paying attention to, but wasn't. But that became the first real crack, so to speak. Um, it was about the time when the government started their TARP program. So, and they were encouraging banks to apply. So basically, they said, you need to apply. I didn't really want to apply because I knew I had a problem, so to speak. But David didn't know it, and the attorneys didn't know it, so they applied, okay? Um, and I knew this was going to blow up, okay? So we turned it down. We said, we don't want to. It turns out they were going to turn us down anyway. But, but what happens is the, um, uh, what magazine was it? Cranes somehow finds out about this. And I become the guy who's turning down TARP, okay? The only guy who's turned down TARP. So it's news, okay? Next thing I'm on, no, no, I'm on Fox News doing an interview, right? Uh, I did two or three different interviews. So we're trying to spin this thing, obviously. So one of the interviews I gave, 
the question came up, why would I turn down TARP? So I said, well, I said, I don't think the government has any business being in the banking business. Let the guys fail who are going to fail. The system will suffer, but it'll recover. You know, and I believe that. You know. Well, the superintendent of banking calls me the next day, and he's really pissed at me. And he said, you just dissed us. I said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you were critical of us, and you know, we're, we did a lot for you, and we're really upset about this. So I went back, and I looked at the interview, and I saw the segment. I said, I called him back. I said, what did I say about you? He said, well, you this Congress, so we're the same. And I said to him, I said, you're a an idiot, and hung up. Biggest mistake of my life. Um, they started an audit. Okay. Um, that wasn't enough for me. So now I'm, in, I'm into this guy, by now, six and a half million, because we need to put another million and a half up. And he starts making noise, he wants his money back, okay? No way for me to get his money back, right? So he comes up with another scheme. <laughs> um, any other time, I would have seen right through it, but you, know, you sort of start to believe what you want to believe. Um, he said, you can buy this insurance company. He had an affiliation with an insurance company. The guy's in his 80s, he wants to retire. He says, you can buy it for $37 million. So I said, he said, but you're really just buying it and then you're going to flip it to somebody else and you'll pick up a $7 million fee, which just happened to be pretty close to what I owed him, right? So I agree. Um, and it was a fraud from day one. Okay? Of course, I didn't see that, um, probably more because I didn't want to see it. But this attorney, who was the former lieutenant governor of Kentucky, the guy was from Kentucky, does the due diligence, says it's a good deal, we're okay. Um, turns out all the reports, all the, everything were, were, were doctored, okay. Turns out even the Oklahoma Insurance Department was in on it. <laughs> okay, that's how crazy it was. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, we make the deal, and of course there is no buyer at the other end. I've talked to this guy a couple of times, but it's all bull and I'm saddled with this company. It turns out that it's worth maybe six, seven million dollars. Okay. But that's not the whole story. The way I financed it was also illegal. Okay. We used their reserves as leverage with Oppenheimer to borrow $30 million to buy the bank. He actually bought some of the assets back simultaneously for the other seven and a half. So he got he got his thirty-seven, thirty million dollars. Okay. You said the deal was for thirty-seven. Thirty-seven point five million. It ended up not being worth that. Wasn't worth maybe six, seven million dollars at that. Yeah. But the uh, the main purpose of that was to provide some capital to put back into the bank. Well, to uh, pay off the guy who gave me the capital. Um, uh, you know, it was it was a fool's errand. I mean, you know, really. Um, but at the time, it was a way out, you know, for me, at least I saw it as a way out. Anyway, we got saddled with the insurance company and began to realize pretty quickly that it was a pile of crap. Um, so we tried to work through it. Um, of course, all the time knowing that we had purchased it illegally, okay, uh, obviously the people at Amaheim were, weren't on it too, because they knew they should have done a little of their own due diligence and knew that I couldn't do that. Um, so about three months into it, 
you know, uh, we got to do something. So we met with the former owner. We had all kinds of agreements with him where he was basically, it's made it very easy to do. And he reneged on all those agreements. So now we're up, really. So I had to go meet with the Oklahoma Insurance Department and tell them what happened. Okay. And, you know, ironically, they took it pretty well. Um, basically, they said, you got scammed. And I said, yeah, I got scammed. Um, but I explained to them how I did it and didn't flinch. They basically said, well, see if you can find a partner and try to work through this thing. So we did. <laughs> um, but it was, you know, it really made me... The, in these, it was a uh, disability insurance company, and the connection between him and this guy were that he has PEOs. PEOs use them for the disability insurance. For you know, there were a lot of trucking companies, stuff like that. So everybody knew what the deal was. So we basically knew we, we couldn't do anything with it. So I went back to the Oklahoma Insurance Department. And I says, you know, we're gonna, you're just gonna have to liquidate this thing. Around the same time, um, um, this was now late 2008, okay, um, all this other crap is going on at the same time. Um, so um, I guess it's mid-2009, because I resigned in October of 2009. Um, this examination is going on at the bank, and it's basically a very in-depth forensic you know, they knew something was going on. So they uncover this transaction. So this guy had an account with about seven half million dollars in it. Uh, maybe maybe six and a half, seven. So he said, that's how I'll, I'll purchase it. So we ran the money through another company that he controlled, and that company bought an interest in Bedford through this attorney. What I didn't, I should have realized, but didn't, was that he didn't take the money out. He borrowed against it. He took what's, what we used to call a passbook loan, okay? So basically that passbook loan went, the money went to this company, to Bedford, and then back into the bank, which they called the round trip transaction, okay? Should I have known about it? Sure. But I just didn't. I mean, and even if I did, I would have said, because I've used that same mechanism many times, like I was involved in converting savings and loans to commercial, and we tell the, the deposits, borrow against the money, not realizing it's, a, it's an illegal transaction because it's a loan. Technically, it's a loan, but really it's not, you know, in my thinking. So anyway, they confront me with this in October of 2009. And I said, holy shit, you know, I'm thinking my real issue is the insurance company, not here. Um, so basically, I got them to pay it off which triggered a whole other series of events. Turns out it wasn't his money. It was investor money that was supposed to be sitting in this account. So by borrowing against it, he was able to show them the money was still there. Okay, In reality, it wasn't. Okay, um, Because there was somebody else at the bank that was all part of this. Um, there was sort of the guy in between him and I. Um, so by October, you know, I said, the chairman of the bank says, you better get a criminal attorney. You got some serious. So I did. I hired a criminal attorney. And thinking that the real problem was in Oklahoma, figuring this was, you know, a problem, but not a criminal problem. Um, so I hired a criminal attorney out there, 
and we went out, we met with them, and you know, they're willing to work with me because they knew that this was a scam. So they didn't want it. They didn't want to be outed either. Okay. And next thing I know, my assets get frozen. I think in November, December. And then I know I got a problem at the bank. Okay. But I just don't know what it is. So the attorney I hired uh, was a pretty well-known criminal attorney in New York. And thank God I gave him a retainer before this happened. Um, goes down and meets with them, and basically they're saying they're not telling us much of anything. Um, tells them I'm willing to cooperate with whatever, right? So I don't hear anything. The bank is sold at what's an assisted sale in March. I get arrested the next day. I mean, publicly arrested, like all over the newspapers and everything else. And basically the headline was, tempted, bank attempts to defraud TARP, okay? Um, you know, looking at it, clearly that transaction would have been a fraud at top. Um, the fact that I withdrew the application, they're saying, well, you would have been turned down anyway, so you really, you know what I mean? So that's kind of what, what happened. And then it really became, you know, I'm looking at 40 plus years, millions of dollars in fines. And the attorney says to me, he said, listen, he said, you can fight this if you want. He said, but... You may win. I think it was a 42-count indictment. You may win on 41, but they're always going to get you on conspiracy, and they get to add everything back. So you could do 30 years in prison. Plus, you don't have the money to fight them. It's going to cost $5 million. You're going to need a public, you're going to have to have a public defender. So she got to make a deal. So I did. I agreed to cooperate against this guy and anybody else. That Look, I was just trying to save my ass, you know what I mean? And that's how I ended up... I mean, I was pre-trial for five years. I pled in October 2010. I didn't get sentenced to August 2015. Um, and I started my sentence that November. And that's kind of the whole story. And you know, I'm sure I left stuff out. But, you know. So how long did you actually serve? Uh, about 20 months um, at, a, at a prison camp in um, New Canaan, Pennsylvania. Actually, well, it's New Canaan was the name of the facility. It was Waymark, Pennsylvania. I self-reported, so, you know. You have to report in is there a certain period of time after? Yeah, I'm still, I still have till December. In December, once I'm up to December, I'm on what's called supervisor release. Um, I'm on what they call low intensity, which means I can pretty much travel and do everything within the United States. I just have to let them know where I am. Um, but there are no other real restrictions because I had to stop making restitution payments. Um, so you have a pretty large restitution. So what is what have they told you? How much are they? Um, they can take 10% of what I earn. Okay, And obviously I forfeited all my assets as part of the plea deal. Um, so I'm paying them $143 a month. Okay. Um, forever, I guess, you know, and what happens each year, you, you have to file a financial statement with them. And then if obviously if you've made more money, you've got to report that, you know, um, you know, so far I've made nominal amounts of money, so it really hasn't been an issue, but at some point, you know, if I make substantial money, they'll get 10% of it. It's just the fact I got to deal with it. You know, I don't like it, but I got to deal with it, you know, and that's it, you know, um, 
can never go back. I had a degree, never to go back into banking. I'm banned from banking and any public companies. There were a couple of little things that got thrown in there. Um, so that's right. I love your story. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to another episode of Fraud Talk. You can find all episodes of Fraud Talk on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Duffley, signing off.